If you'll open your Bible this morning to the book of Numbers, chapter 21, in just a moment, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture from the Old Testament that helps us understand why we're here as a church. If you're visiting with us today, we're super glad that you're here and hope that the service will be a blessing to you. And we're studying on these Sunday mornings about the church. What is the purpose of the church? Why are we here? And why has God placed the church in the world? All the buildings and restaurants and plants and institutions and schools in our community. Why has God placed the church right here in the middle of all of that? Well, I want us to begin with our mission statement, but I don't want to put it on the screen quite yet because I'm hopeful that after so many weeks of talking about this, you have already memorized the mission statement and you don't have to uh, read it. I'm either going to be very pleasantly pleased or very disappointed if you can't do this. I'm setting you up right now. But on the count of three, I want to just see where we are. If you can quote the mission statement without me helping you get started, okay? One, two, three. That's it. That's the mission statement, to help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. And as we said last Sunday, and if you weren't here, I made a big deal out of this last week, the key to helping someone else come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is that you yourself be satisfied with Jesus. In other words, that Jesus Christ would be real in you. I've noticed in my own life, if I'm walking in, you know, we're all sinners, nobody's perfect, but nonetheless, if I am walking in unbroken fellowship with Jesus, if I am filled with his spirit, if I'm sensitive to his voice, let me just say it this way, if I'm right with God, then it's like he just bubbles up out of me and it's not hard at all for me to do a sermon. It's not hard for me to talk to somebody one-on-one. It's just like Jesus is in me and Jesus is coming out. On the other hand, if we're not that close to God, it's not as natural and it's not as easy. And that's certainly true of you. Now, maybe the best example we've seen of this in the last couple of weeks has been in the death of Queen Elizabeth of England. I have been fascinated as I've learned about her life, as I have learned about her faith, I talked about her quite a bit two weeks ago, and I want to revisit her life today just a little bit. Perhaps you saw on the news, how could you have missed it, that there was a line in London over five miles long of people who were standing in that line to get inside of a chapel so that they could see the coffin of the queen. Many stood in that line for over 24 hours. Think about that. Not to have their picture made with the queen or to meet the queen or to have a meal with the queen. She was already gone. But just to view her coffin. And it says to me, there was something about this lady That is absolutely unbelievable. You say, well, yeah, John, she's a queen. She has all this power. Well, she does have that position of influence, but I think there was much more to the expressions of love that we have seen all across the world than just that. Last Monday, over 4 billion people across the world watched the funeral of the queen. Now, there are only 8 billion people in the world, maybe not even quite 8 billion. And so over half of the world's population watched the queen's funeral. And we're wondering, what is it about this lady that has so captivated all of us and the billions of people around the world? I received a text message from a friend just the other night who had been watching BBC. And uh, he had listened to one of their commentators speculate on what it is about the queen or what it was about the queen that, that, that gave her such a draw, such an appeal. What is it about her life? And the commentator said this, this is a pretty 
tight quote, a little bit of a paraphrase, but here's what he said. In a world that seems increasingly bad, the queen was good. Think about that. The queen was good. What's happening, this commentator said, this British commentator said, what's happening is a yearning for good. And so we live in a world where there's so much sin, so much crime, so much all these problems, so much turmoil, so much hatred, so much anger. And somehow the queen seemed to be above that. And as I've thought about what that commentator said, and I've tried to think of that from a biblical perspective, we know from the Bible that no one is good in and of themselves. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who is good. And so the goodness that was in the queen was the goodness of Jesus Christ who lived on the inside of her. And so I believe, and I don't think I'm the only one who believes this, that the draw of the queen was the king who lived on the inside of her. Now, last week I was learning and trying to study more about the queen, and I came across a little video clip. We're gonna show this from a man named Tim Farron. Maybe you've heard the name. He's been a member of parliament in the UK since 2005. And just a few days ago, there in Parliament, now you're going to be watching a clip from, from the British Parliament in London. And as you're watching this, ask yourself this question Have I ever seen anything like this from our you know, government? I'm not saying we haven't, but I'm saying what we're about to see is a pretty powerful testimony from a member of Parliament about the Queen's life. Let's watch this, Tim Farron. So she was a constant to us all, and has been said already, but the constant in her life was her faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let's remember this, that for many people, you know, it may have been, but for her, it was not a perfunctory ceremonial faith. It was a living, active faith in a living saviour. Can you imagine that? I mean... Uh, go ahead. Somebody wanted to clap for him. I mean, that was good. A living, active faith in a living Savior. And he made the statement, she's been a constant for us, but the constant in her life was her faith in Jesus Christ. And so I say that today to say that one of the, re the primary reason that God has placed the church in the world is so that we would be salt and light. So we could reach out to those beyond the walls of this church with our words and with our life. And we could say to them the answer to your question, the solution to your problem, the forgiveness for your sins is found in, a per, in the person of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus is real to us, that comes across more naturally. Now, we think about, I want us to put it up if we still have it, the, yeah, the mission statement. We've already said it, we don't have to say it again, but just look at it. I know it's familiar to us now, but look at this. What are we trying to do? To help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. Now, folks, that's a lot easier to memorize than it is to do. Let me say it this way. In trying to carry out that mission statement, we are fighting an uphill battle to try to help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. We are climbing a mountain or trying to climb a mountain that we cannot climb without the divine help of God. I read just recently some data from Pew Research and it was very alarming. It says that in the early 1990s, now we're talking about 30 years ago, my dad became pastor here in 1990. 
And so, I mean, in the grand scheme of American history, this is not that long ago. It's over 30 years. But since the early, in the early 1990s, almost 90% of American adults claim to be Christians. Almost 90%. Now, that doesn't mean they were all saved, but almost 90% of American adults claim to be Christians today. 64% of American adults claim to be Christians. In the last 30 years, we've gone from 90%. Here's, what we're, here's what's happening. That's why what I'm saying. We're trying to climb a mountain to help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ because what's happening in our country, and it's certainly happening globally, but let's just take America. What we're seeing is a decline in Christianity from 90 to 64. They tell us that by the year 2050, and at the rate we're going, it could happen before then, that Christians will be in the minority in America. So if you were running a business and you look at your spreadsheet and you see how much money's coming in and how much money's going out, and you're seeing these types of losses, what would you do? Well, the first thing you would do is you would say, we've got to stop the bleeding here. I mean, we can't, if it keeps going like this, we're going to be out of business. And so before we can think about turning it up, we have to stop the bleeding. And then with God's help, we can see an increase. Now, what I'm saying to you today, God, you say, John, how do we stop the bleeding? How can we reverse this trend? How can we here at First Baptist Church Pasadena, we're one of, of hundreds of thousands of churches in the country. How can we here really impact the world? And what I'm saying is it begins by Jesus being real to us. The solution, the first step in reversing this trend and seeing not a further decline, but a steadying, a plateauing, and then an incline in the number of Christians. Now think about this. The first step is for Jesus Christ to become more real to you and more real to me. And that's what I was saying at the beginning. One of the things I like about, we've got our little table and desk over here in this little corner. And during the worship time, of course, I'm worshiping and thinking about the Lord, but I can't help but look around the room and I can't help but see the people and friends that I know in the room. And I know so many of you, what you're going through. And I'm saying to me, it is a powerful thing to see people who have gone through great difficulty and loss and let, yet you're here on Sunday worshiping and praising God. What does that, it's, it, I'm saying it's powerful to me and I'm already saved. But how powerful must that be to those who don't know the Lord and to those who are not saved? So to help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ begins with us being close to God and, and Jesus satisfying and really meeting the deep needs of our life. But then we ask the question, okay, that being true, I think Jesus is real to me and I'm wanting to grow and get closer to him, but he has changed my life. What specifically can we do to make that happen, to help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ? You know, I've often heard it said that when it comes to God's work, we should pray as though everything depends on God and we should work as though everything depends on us. And so I think that's pretty good. And so what do we do? We think, okay, now God, what would you have me to do? Well, we don't have to sit down and try to make things up. God gives us in the Bible some very clear purposes of why we're here. And let's look at these three purposes and we're gonna deal with them over the course of the next three weeks. Number one, our purpose is to lift up Jesus. Number two, to build up believers. Number three, 
to reach out to others. Those are the three purposes of the church. They're laid out in the Bible. Let's say that together. To lift up Jesus, say it louder, to build up believers and to reach out to others. That's why we're here. Now, this morning, we're thinking about lifting up Jesus, the importance of that. This is our part in helping other people. You see, these 12, these students, 10 students that have been recently saved and baptized, how did this happen? I mean, how did, how did they come to know the Lord? Well, obviously, one of their friends who was already saved and who loved Jesus and who was excited about their relationship with God either shared Christ with them or invited them to come to church and somebody else shared Christ with them. And that's how, I mean, we're seeing today a beautiful picture of how this works. And so how do we lift up Jesus and why is this so very important? Now I wanna begin, then we're gonna get to the passage in Numbers. But I wanna show you a verse in John chapter 12. Jesus talks about this whole idea of him being lifted up. And he's talking about the cross But the application still is true today that we are to lift up Jesus. Notice he says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Think about that. Jesus has made a promise that if we will simply, lovingly lift him up, that he will draw all people to himself. It's not our job to save anybody or even to draw them to Jesus or to pull them in his direction. That's his job, but it is our job to lift him up. Now you're in the book of Numbers chapter 21. Let's see if this Old Testament story can help us understand why it is important to lift up Jesus. And the first thing I would say about that, I'm gonna mention three things. And that'll be all for today. But I want to just mention this. The first thing, the first reason we should lift up Jesus is because we have a, there is a universal problem in the world. You have it. I have it. The queen had it. The Pope has it. Ministers have it. Democrats have it. Republicans have it. Everybody has this problem. There's a universal problem. And the problem is sin. The problem is sin. Sin. We would say to a child, anything we do that makes God unhappy. The Bible definition of sin, missing the mark or falling short. And we've all missed the mark and we've all fallen short. Now, in Numbers 21, the Israelites are in the, in the wilderness. They're in the desert out there and they're wandering around and they're complaining And let's pick up in verse four. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. And our soul loathes or hates this worthless bread. And so here the children of Israel doing what we often do, complaining about their circumstances. God, if you're good, why would you allow this to happen? Verse six, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people. And many of the people of Israel died. And so God got fed up with their complaining. God's thinking to himself, I brought them out of Egyptian bondage. I've given them manna from heaven. I've given them all the water they need to drink. I've met every need that they've had. Their shoes are not wearing out. I'm I'm right there with them. I'm leading them with a pillar of cloud at day, a pillar of fire by night. And all these people do is complain. And God said, I've had enough of it. And he sent these poisonous serpents in their midst. 
And these serpents began to bite these Israelites. And the Israelites began to die. And they had, and this is a picture of sin. There was a common problem. I was interested to read. I I looked this up last night because I thought I knew approximately, but I didn't know exactly. That in the course of life, before we die, almost 40% of people will get cancer. This next statistic I did not know, and it really surprised me and concerned me, 50% of American adults currently have uh, heart disease. 50%. I read that last night. I thought, we've got to quit serving these donut holes out there. We're killing the people. I mean, they've already got heart. 50% have heart disease. But think about this. 100% of us have sin disease. We have all fallen short of God's standard. We have all missed the mark. We've all done things that make God unhappy. We're sinners by birth. We're sinners by nature. And we're sinners by choice. And our biggest problem is our sin problem. There's a universal problem. But think about this. There's a singular solution. There's one solution to the problem of sin, and it's in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, beginning in verse 7, we read how, how this is pictured in the Old Testament. Therefore, the keep, people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it, that is this bronze serpent shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent that he lived. And so you can imagine all this, hundreds of thousands of people, maybe around 2 million people in the desert. And I don't know, thousands, hundreds of thousands, we don't know how many, tens of thousands have been bitten by these snakes and they're dying And so their family and friends are seeing this happen. And even the ones who are bitten that haven't died yet, they say to Moses, Moses, you've got to do something. We have sinned. We have have doubted God. We've complained against God. And now this is his judgment on us. Please, Moses, do something. Moses prayed and God told Moses what to do. He said, Moses, make a bronze serpent. Fashion that serpent together. Get it in the fire and in the heat. Fashion that and then attach that bronze serpent to to the end of a pole. And then you lift that bronze serpent up And anybody who has been bitten by these poisonous snakes, if they'll just look to that bronze serpent, they'll be healed. Now, had I been Moses, I would have thought, now, what is it about looking to a bronze serpent? I mean, it seems like they would need an injection. It seems like they would need some more medical, better medical treatment. But look, what is the connection of that? Well, the connection is that this is an Old Testament picture to Jesus Christ being lifted up on the cross And if we will look to him by faith and trust in him, then he will save us from the disease of sin. Look in John chapter three, Jesus spoke these words himself. In John chapter three and in verse 14, he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus is saying, that was a picture of me. Even so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then the next verse we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Say the rest of it with me, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so Jesus was saying that serpent in the Old Testament was a picture of me. Now notice this, God didn't say to Moses, Moses, I want you to build a bronze serpent 
Then I want you to build a copper cow. Then I want you to build a silver bird. And then Moses, I want you to make a cardboard camel since you're out here in the desert. And then I want you to make an aluminum alligator and maybe a couple more of these animals that you just choose. And then put each one of those animals on the end of a pole. And Moses, you hold up one of the poles and get some of the other leaders and let them hold up another pole and tell all the people out there who've been bitten by one of these poisonous snakes, if you'll just look towards any of those animals, then you'll be healed, you'll be delivered. No, he didn't say that. God said to Moses, there's one thing I want you to make, a serpent. And when the people look at the serpent, that is the way. That's why I'm saying there is a singular solution to the problem of Jesus Christ, to the problem of sin, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. And it says to me that as the church, think about this, as the church, we're not a restaurant. We're not a political party. We're, we're not a school. We're, we're not a law firm. We're not a plant. We are the church. We are the called out believers of Jesus Christ, the family of God. And we have something to offer the world that we can offer in a very unique way. And that's why every time we gather here for a service, whether it's on Sunday or Wednesday or Tuesday or any other time, listen very carefully to me. We are here for one primary purpose, and that is to lift up the person of Jesus Christ. And it is to say to those who are here, to say to those who are watching, and hopefully that we can say to those beyond the walls of the church, the answer to your problem is Jesus. The solution to your sin is Jesus. And one of the things that I take very seriously as a preacher of the God, a God-called preacher of the gospel, is that when I stand in this pulpit, or my dad stands in this pulpit, we have a calling and a commissioning on our lives not to stand up here and hash out our political opinions. You say, don't you have political opinions? Yes, I do. But I have something more important than an opinion. I have a calling on my life. And my calling is not to hash out political opinions. My calling is to lift up the person of Jesus Christ. That's our calling. That's your calling. Now, that doesn't mean that you can never address something that's going on in the world. You can, as it's appropriate from the Scripture. Certainly, you can, and at times, we should do that. But listen, listen to me very carefully. You listen, say amen. We are not here to curse the darkness. We are here to shine the light. And sometimes I'll hear a preacher preach, and he spends his whole sermon cursing the darkness, and I'm more discouraged when it was over with than I was before it started. We're not now. Sometimes we have to expose the darkness. We have to say this is sin. Certainly we do that. But our calling is not to curse the darkness. Our, pro, our calling is to shine the light. When you go home at night, if it, you get home at 10 o'clock, and you didn't leave any light zone. And so you're stumbling around, you get in your garage, you open the door, there's your laundry room, you don't see any light. What do you do? Do you curse the darkness? Do you try to sweep the darkness away? Do you rebuke the darkness? No, I don't do any of those things. And if you do, you need help. If you do any of those things, you need it. No, what do we do? We flip the switch. We turn on the light. And then the light makes the darkness go away. You see, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. He knew that we would live in a dark world. But the solution to that is that we would shine the light. And we have a message. I've written this in my notes. I want to say this to you. No sin is too big. No problem is too bad. And no situation is too hopeless for Jesus. 
Aren't you glad that God doesn't look at the bigness of your sin? Or I'm certainly glad God doesn't look at the bigness of my sin and say that sin is too big for me. There's not anything I can do about it. I heard this past week a preacher talking about this and he was talking about these two kids on the playground at school, one named Billy and one named Jimmy. And it really illustrates the point well. Billy said to Jimmy, he said, Jimmy, my dad made a list of all the men in this town that he can whip. And your dad's name is at the top of that list. And Jimmy said to Billy, your dad can't whip my dad. My dad's bigger than your dad. He said, I'm telling you, my dad can whip your dad. You know, when we were all kids, we didn't we all say whose daddy was the best and whose daddy was the tough. And so Jimmy went home and Jimmy said to his daddy, he said, Dad, you're not going to believe what happened at school today. What happened? He said, well, Billy told me that his dad has a list of all the men in town that he can whip and your name's at the top of that list. And Jimmy's daddy said, did he really tell you that? He said, yeah. Well, Jimmy's dad put his jacket on, got his keys, got backed out of the driveway, drove to Billy's dad's house, knocked on the door. He answered the door. He said, can I come in? He said, you can. And uh, Jimmy's dad starts taking his jacket off, starts rolling up his sleeves, kind of starts stretching like he's going to get into a fight. And he said, let me say something. Let me get this straight. He said, Jimmy tells me that Billy told him that you've made a list of all the men in town who you can whip, and my name is at the top of that list. And he said, I want to know, now that I'm here, what are you going to do about it? And he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to take your name off the list. (laughs) You're too big for me. I'll just draw my, I was wrong. You know what? I'm thankful that when God looks at the bigness and the badness of our sins, he doesn't take our name off the list. Instead, he takes our sins off the list. He blots the sins out of the book and he keeps us on the list and he forgives us if we will go to him in faith and asking him to save. So I'm saying to you today, think about this. There's a universal problem. It's in America. Our problem is not, we say our problem's in Washington. That, That is a problem, but that's not, that's a problem that's the result of a deeper problem. The problem is sin. The solution is Jesus. We have the solution. If we ourselves are filled with Jesus and satisfied with Jesus, we can say to others who are searching for Jesus, but they don't know what they're searching for. Listen, I have found in Christ, the peace and the joy and the forgiveness and the assurance that I'm looking for, and you can have that. There is a singular solution, and it is in the person of Jesus Christ. But think about this third truth. I want to just put this on your heart today as well, and that is there's a sense of urgency. And I think this is one of the things that the church of Jesus Christ needs today is urgency to be about our father's business. You know, there's a passage in the Old Testament that talks about people who were not really urgent about the things of God. They're kind of laissez-faire. They're kind of laid back and, you know, just kind of taking life as it comes. And the Bible says, God said, you are at ease in Zion. Now, Zion's another name for Mount Zion, Jerusalem, where they live. And God says, as I look down from heaven at you, you, you look like you're at ease in Zion. I think God would say to many of us today, you're at ease in Pasadena. You're at ease in Deer Park and LaPorte. You're at ease in Houston. People all around you are dying and going to hell and you are at ease. It doesn't seem to bother you. I guarantee you when God said to Moses, Moses, make this bronze serpent and lift it up on that pole. Moses didn't say, well, God, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna get around to that next week. God, I've got some other things I'm trying to line out this week. And next week, or maybe the next week, if I get caught up, maybe in the next couple of weeks, I'm gonna get that serpent made and I'll put it on a pole and I'll lift it up and then... Had Moses done that, tens of thousands more people would have died. 
When God said to Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up, Moses did that with a sense of urgency. Why? Because he saw that people all around him were dying. And yet, people all around us are dying. They're dying without Christ. And yet, I'm speaking for me, maybe it's true of you, sometimes I look at my own life and I say, I do believe that Jesus is the singular solution to our problem. I am satisfied with him. I do love him. But maybe I myself don't have the urgency that God would have me to have about getting the gospel message to as many people as I possibly can. I read a statistic this week. I I didn't know the number. It's staggering. But last year, in 2021, approximately 69 million people died worldwide. Now, You know, 8 billion people, almost, 69 million died. But I can't get my mind around those numbers, so I tried to to break that down. That's approximately 189,000 deaths a day. If Pasadena has 150,000 people living in it, I'm not sure the exact population of LaPorte, but if you added Pasadena or Deer Deer Park or LaPorte, not both, let's take Deer Park. If you took Deer Park's population and Pasadena's population and you added those together, it's going to be somewhere in this 189,000. So 189, the population of Pasadena and Deer Park is dying every day. Now we wonder how many of these are saved? How many of these are unsaved? Well, only God knows, but we know that the number who claim to be saved is on the decline. And we also know from what Jesus said that we are to enter by the narrow gate because wide is the path and broad is the way that leads to death. And so Jesus says to us, there are more unsaved people than there are saved people. So let's just take that number for simple math of 189,000 and let's give people the benefit of the doubt. And let's say that half of those who die are saved and half are unsaved. What does that mean? That means that every day, approximately 94,500 people die without Christ. Now think about that. That is a staggering number, but I still can't hardly get my mind around that. So let's try to give a better illustration of that. A Boeing 747, which is a large, a large airplane, may not be the largest, but it's one of the larger airplanes in the world. It holds 467 passengers. If it's full, there are 467 passengers on board. That would mean, we're talking about 94,900, 94,500 people dying every day without Christ, that would be the equivalent of 202 Boeing 747s crashing every day, falling out of the sky and crashing and everybody on board dying. Now, what would you do if you got home from work tomorrow night and you turn the evening news on, Lester Holt or whoever you watch for the evening news, and they began the program by saying, ladies and gentlemen, we've had another bad day in the skies today. 202 planes have fallen out of the air and over 94,000 people have died today. And it happened again yesterday. And it happened the day before that. And we're seeing a pattern. Over 200 planes every day are falling out of the sky and over 94,000 people are dying every day. Now, what would you think if you saw that? I'll tell you what I would think. I would think, I'm gonna drive to Dallas. I'm not gonna fly up there. I'm gonna drive to Dallas if that many planes are falling out of the air. And yet... 
That's how many people, conservatively speaking, are dying every day without Jesus Christ. And we have to ask ourselves, do I have an urgency? You see, those 94 plus thousand people who died yesterday without Christ, it's too late for them. Now you think about that. They're in a place right now that the Bible calls Hades. And Jesus said, when he was telling a story one time in in Luke chapter 16, he said, Hades is where the unsaved go immediately after their death. Paradise, heaven, is where the saved go immediately after their death. But Jesus said, you need to understand something about those two locations. If you're in Hades, you can't then pass to paradise or to heaven. A great gulf is fixed between these two locations. And I'm saying to you, 94,500 people, what would that mean in, in this day? We're not even anywhere near halfway done with this day yet. Since midnight this morning, half of that number. So what are we at? 45, 46, 47,000 people since midnight. I woke up this morning, went out and watered my grass and exercised on my treadmill and had some breakfast. And so since I did that this morning, that's not been that long ago, that 25 or 30,000 people worldwide have died lost with Christ and they've ended up in a place where it is too late where they can no longer change their mind, where they can no longer be saved. Their decision to reject Christ is sealed. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon said this, when a tree falls out in the wilderness, whether that tree falls to the south or to the north, where that tree falls, that's where it will lie. It won't get up again. And that's how it is with us at the point of death. We die, and when we die, we die in an eternal condition, and we go to an eternal place. And once there, we are there for all eternity. And I'm giving you conservative numbers saying that every day worldwide, over 94,000 people are dying lost, going to Hades, eternally separated from Christ. And I'm asking you today, And as I point that finger at you, I've got three fingers pointing back to me. I'm asking me today, is there a sense of urgency about that? Or do we say, well, it is what it is, John. It's always been that way. There's not anything I can do about it. Man, I've got my family. I've got my life. I've got my responsibilities. I've got my job. And man, I wish they'd all get saved. Wish they'd all get saved. Jesus Christ has left us on this earth and placed a calling on our lives that we would devote our lives to sharing his message, his love, his grace, his death, his blood with a world that largely rejects him. And it's on us. And we have to ask ourselves, am I urgent Am I driven by that? Does that bother me that this is happening? Or am I more interested in who the Texans are playing this afternoon? It is a convicting, am I more interested in how much money I have in my stocks? Am I more interested in my house? Am I more interested in my friends than all these people dying without Christ? 202 airplanes flying out of the, falling out of the sky every day of unsaved people. But that number is still staggering to me, and I tried to break it down more. Did you know that there are 86,400 seconds in a day? 
86,400 seconds in a day. That number is pretty close to the 94,500 people who are dying every day without Christ. So now I'm kind of getting on something that I could, that I can grasp. That means in less than a second, every second of the day, somebody dies lost without Christ. Let me say that again. In less than a second, for every second of the day, Somebody dies lost without Christ. Now, I can finally get my mind around that. And so I think about that number, and I'm a visual or, you know, a, a learner that likes as many helps as I can have in learning. So I wanted something. This is not visual as much as it is with our, it's, it's auditory, it's hearing, a second. Less than a second. Every, every second, every, every day, somebody dies lost without Christ. Listen to this. That snap is coming slightly less than a second. And so that snap represents a person. Every snap represents a person dying, unsaved, headed to Hades, ultimately to hell, separated from God forever. No more sermons, no more invitations, no more chances to be saved. And God says, I've placed you here to get the message to them now. It's interesting. Back in the 1970s, our family lived in East Tennessee. I would say I was six, seven, eight years old. I was young. And my dad was preaching a similar sermon to what I'm preaching today. And he had done the work of getting the statistics as best he could get it of how many people were unsaved when they die and how that breaks down to the second. And I, I don't remember the numbers I was a kid, but I remember the sermon and I remember the snap and I remember my dad saying when he was probably in his 30s and here I am a young kid, he said to that congregation in East Tennessee, every time I snap my finger, a person goes to hell. Now here's the interesting thing about that. That's been... 45 years ago, his snap was slower than today's snap. I don't remember the numbers, but I remember the snap. And I remember him saying, every time I snap my finger, somebody dies lost and is eternally separated from God. Now, what's happened in the last 40 plus years, 45 years, less and less people are saved. More and more people are unsaved. And so the snap got faster. Now, think about this. What has God placed the church in the world to do? I'll tell you what he's placed us in the world to do. To lift up the person, the life, the death, the blood, the resurrection, the forgiveness, the grace, the hope, the mercy, the healing, to lift up the person of Jesus Christ in our daily conversations, not just in the pulpit, but in our daily conversations. Why? So that we can slow the snap. So that we can slow the snap. And I'm going to encourage you this week. I was thinking last night when I was finishing this sermon, I thought, now God, at the end... Where's this sermon going? 
always try so hard to have application so it's not just information, like what am I supposed to do? I'm always asking myself during the week, God, where's this sermon going? I know some of you are thinking, we always ask that while it's happening. Where's this sermon going? I'll tell you where this one's going and where it's about to land. Here's the challenge for you and for me this week. That this week, we would share Christ with one person who doesn't know him. A family member, a friend, a schoolmate, a business associate, a neighbor. That we would share Christ with one person who doesn't know him. And so with our heads bowed and eyes closed today, you've been very attentive And I sense the Spirit of God in this service. Would you ask God to help you this week to share Christ with one person? You say, John, I don't know what to say. Yes, you do. If you've been saved, you know what to say. You know enough to say so that they could be saved. You know more than you think you do. And God will help you. But would you ask God to give you an opportunity this week, some of you who just got baptized. I mean, think about that. You just got saved. Now you've been baptized. How about this week if you go to your school and say, let me just tell you what's happened in my life. We can see, we are seeing in the student ministry and we can see across the board a snowball effect of people being saved and a slowing down of the snap. Now we think about all the unsaved people living around us who need Jesus, who are more open to hearing about him than we might think they are. Many of them, they just have never had the opportunity to be saved. But you know what I know? And we saw it last Sunday when over 20 people got saved in this service. There are people within the walls of this church. We saw it in the first service today. There were several who got saved in that service. And in this service today, here you are, in the house of God, and yet you don't have peace. You don't have assurance. You don't know for sure that your sins have been forgiven. And you don't know when your time comes which way you're going, up or down, heaven or hell. You don't know. You need to get that settled today, and you can if you'll ask Jesus to forgive you and save you. Pray this prayer right now. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me and I trust you to do it. Lord, I trust you. With all my heart, I trust you. And I ask you to begin now to make me the person that you want me to be.